Well, here we are for 2016. We're back. I think it's a time of the year when you actually, uh, you know, you've had a bit of time off. You maybe haven't trained as hard as you usually would. You've probably eaten a little bit more than you would uh, Very meaty. As well, and you actually have a chance to step back and think about why you really train. Mm. Rod, you and I were just talking about this pre-show. For those of, of uh, our listeners who are in Sydney, for the last five days, it's actually been, well, five Miserable. or six days, literally has not stopped raining. Yeah. There's been a consistent period of rain and mm. very little sun, yeah. and I hadn't been training much, mm. I hadn't been doing much yeah. or moving much, yeah. and I was just literally started to feel depressed well, yeah. and anxious and ineffective and... <laughs> <laughs> well, for our listener, I mean, uh, our regulars would know you are quite sensitive. That you know, you can't watch the news; a bit depressing for you. Yeah, you yeah. Are quite, you're very in tune with, uh, with I, the world around you. I have and, to um, nurture my yes. uh, mental and uh, emotional yeah. states. I mean, the, wearing the, the the thongs will only get you so far. You know, you, you, <laughs> yes. you really need to have a bit of sunshine. Yeah, it made me sort of think about why I do actually train. You know, like I. I Absolutely, I would love to get stronger and gee, wouldn't it be great to be have a bit more muscle mass and a mm. bit less body fat. Mm. But the mm. reality is that doing that mm. takes some significant effort and consistency over a period of time. Yep. And there'll be little bursts in the year where I'll do that. Mm. But generally speaking, if I don't train consistently, yeah. I'm no good to anyone. <laughs> you know, I, I don't eat as well. Throw them away. I, I slop around. Yeah. I'm sluggish in the mornings. Probably it, drink beer. Yeah, I'll drink some beers, mm. you know, socialise. Yeah. <laughs> Live yep. like all, a normal person. All those things you, for our listeners you don't want to do. Yes. No, got to keep on plan. Um, Interesting. Yeah, no, I must say, I, I would agree I was a little down the dumps too. And um, yeah, I get affected by the weather too. It's, it's, it's not pleasant. But the sun is shining and we're back for another big it year is, of uh, podcast-based activities. Mm. Big show coming up. Our special guest will be Nelson Virgil. Mm. And for those of you who haven't heard of him, you can go to xlmail.com yep. and uh, check out what he's done. Uh, it's a fascinating interview. He's an expert on, I guess, male health, but yeah. specifically testosterone, uh, hormone replacement therapy. Yep. And he has been living with HIV for at least 30 years. Yeah. And he basically got into the field of anabolic steroids to prevent the inevitable wasting syndrome. Muscle wastage, yeah. And uh, off the back of that, he's, I mean, he's, he's pioneered many things in the world of anabolics and research yeah. and, and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, in, in, in that side of things for sure. And he looks fantastic. I mean, yeah. Uh, for, I think he's. 55 maybe? I think so yeah. yeah looking really good so um, yeah that's interesting uh, our resident neuroscientist yep. Luke Tullek groundskeeper Willie he'll be yep. back in With to uh, for part two of his expose Insul- on insulin yeah. insulin and hypertrophy I wonder if uh, if his beard's going to be particularly thick I would imagine lustrous. so I would imagine so and uh, Rawdon you and I might go over a few little bits and pieces of what we've learnt and been doing over the Christmas period yeah we'll bore our listeners with what we've been doing yes (laughs) and for those listeners in Sydney don't be scared of having a couple of hundred thousand IU of vitamin D no get out there get amongst it yeah take a big bolus dose mid show Mm, feel free mm, to mm. Rawdon, the Dubai method is up and pumping. You've got some new training systems and the yeah. uh, Excel docs and various yeah, things yeah. with the programming. Uh, yeah, I um, so basically one of the things I guess that I need as uh, well everyone I suppose that's uh, coaching anyone out there, uh, be it general pop or um, any competitors. I guess for me, knowing uh, that eyes have been dotted and T's crossed, and and one thing that I guess. Uh, my clients will send weekly updates, you know, so they send yep. a report through, let me know how the sleep's been, everything else. So that can influence what I do week to week. 
but then the training intensity, like it's uh, how's training been? Yeah, it's been really good. Right. What, are know. the numbers going up? Yeah, that, is, well, is, if is that's the some, stimulus, you know, is there movement? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are the training, I mean, you know, you and I both know what's a reputable weight to, to, to bench for, you know, 80, 90 kilo guy or, or, or a female. So I guess uh, I wanted to keep an, uh, tabs on, um, you know, what they've actually doing in the gym. And, and I guess what I do now for any of our coaches out there that uh, do work online and, um, well, for any coaches, I, I basically design the programs on an Excel uh, document, then I send the, the programs through, and they uh, opened up via uh, Dropbox. Yep. Uh, so the app on the phone, Dropbox app, and then the individual can actually, so before I send it out, I, I, I lock the, the Excel document with the sections of it unlocked so they can actually edit it. Yep. Uh, and then they open up through ex, uh, Dropbox, and then they um, then have a, an Excel app on the phone, and. Long story short, they can actually track their uh, weights that they're lifting session to session, and then it's uploaded. Uh, it's on autosave, and when they finish the workout, it, it, all the data's there for me. Yeah. You so can I can log actually, in. Well, yeah, and I just open Dropbox, and I, I can um, just check actually, what yeah, they're doing. Just check, yeah. and then when I, you know, at the end of the week, when I'm seeing how their training's gone, I can actually open it up mm. before I tweak things, and uh, when I email um, them uh, their feedback, uh, etc., I can actually track how they've been. Yeah. Um, training intensity wise but they also put a an rpe in there as well so a rate of perceived exertion so you know if the if i'm looking at it and uh you know it's uh week three in their their programming and they've got tens in there for all their rpe you know that's probably a little too uh too much fatigue that we're building up and it can influence deloading and uh things like that so yeah really cool information so yeah that's one of the things that i developed over um uh in the uh, break over the break yeah. yeah and you can be as schmancy as you like with various training protocols but if you've yeah. got a, a pretty simple yeah. uh, relative strength to functional hypertrophy system and you have a client on that and by the mm. end of the phase you've seen their numbers progressively go up well mm. usually there is a response in body composition there somewhere along the line yeah for and, sure and if you if you're tracking that and they're competitive with themselves and they, and they do exactly do what they should be doing then i mean it, it keeps them uh, another way of keep them accountable, accountable which essentially what's the reason why some of my guys then really uh, really good shape and get on stage and be competitive while well, they're a little more uh, consistent and, then, yeah. and they, uh, yeah. they really are compliant. So, uh, you know, for select, obviously some clients are going to be like, eh, but uh, for those that uh, do like the numbers and mm. track things, it's, uh, it's a great tool. Now, mate, for a rare occasion, you've actually been practicing <laughs> what you preach in this department. Yeah, you've, yeah. Um, you've had some significant PBs while I've been overseas. Yeah, yeah. You've put 20 kilos on your deadlift and 15 kilos on your bench press. Yeah. So would you mind maybe running us through uh, like a, a split or some periodization that you used personally to get sure. the increase in those numbers? Yeah, I guess um, if you were to ask me what the key player was, is what you made a joke of. I mean, I got to train. So yeah. I, I managed to train and my stress levels were a lot less than what they once were. So I think that was a real uh, influence on, on what I could do in the gym. And um, of course, I still felt nauseous and felt like death when I was training, but you know, that's standard for me. And, yeah. Uh, as part of the course, but but I guess from a programming perspective, um, yeah, I ended up uh, with a 280 deadlift, which which was getting up to not being reasonable deadlift. You know, I'll try and uh, set a 300, uh, see if I can jump it up a little bit. But basically, with programming, I just um, after having a few consults with with various people, and uh, I will credit Dylan. So Dylan, Gorilla, uh, Gorilla. So Dylan Smuha from uh, Maximum Results Training uh, here in uh, Sydney. Uh, he, uh, he gave me a bit of um, guidance with um, rep ranges and things like that, but it was really quite simple. Over the, it was probably a good eight or nine, maybe eight to ten week period, I managed to sort of 
get some momentum and got most of my training sessions in, but really simple. Um, so I deadlifted and bench pressed uh, twice a week. So that was either Monday or Tuesday and Thursday. So Monday, Thursday, ideally, but if I didn't get to the gym on Monday, it'd be Tuesday, Thursday. So, you know, 48, 72 hours between lifts. Uh, on the uh, Monday, it was pretty simple. I would do uh, five to six sets of four, so a little bit of volume at, you know, whatever weight I can. That, I, all I did was um, progressive overload, so each week lifted heavier and heavier and heavier. Yep. And then on the Thursday, it would be more sets, so it would be six to eight sets. So five to six on Monday, then five to six by four, and then six to eight by doubles okay. on the Thursday. And then, yeah, just, just sort of very basically crept the numbers up over the weeks. So, so you'd keep the same load for all sets, and then next week exactly. increase that load for exactly. all sets. So I might okay. have been uh, like, I might have started at uh, 200. Uh, on the Monday for four, and then the following week it was you know two ten, then two twenty, then two thirty, and that type of thing. And yep. I, I mean, I didn't keep exponentially increasing. Uh, I guess the numbers that I was pull, I was pulling before I then deloaded and uh, went for the two eighty. It was I did five doubles at two fifty on the Thursday, and then uh, rested uh, the whole following week. Then a week after that, I did it on the, the Monday and, and, and pulled the two eighty. And the bench yep. press was similar. So I would uh, deadlift, and then I'd go over to the bench and I'd hit my you know, five to six sets of four and then creep the weight up. Yep. My last lift before I went for the 180 bench was uh, five doubles at uh, 160. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that were my last lifts and then I, you know, deloaded and uh, didn't train, which I felt uh, hideous doing, but, you know, I was told that it was normal. And that's something that I don't do very often. Our listeners probably don't do um, any sort of powerlifters or strength trainers out there would deload, but um, the rest of us may not. Mm. Um, but it certainly paid off and I came back fresh and um, and hit those numbers and relatively pain free pain free and that was a, a key <laughs> I yeah. usually lift with a fair few aches and pains and um, it was really nice actually to bench without shoulder impingement and uh, yep. aches and pains and it makes a huge difference yeah, yeah. things like that so. for those who use social media they can log on and, and have a look at those lifts the deadlift came up nice and smoothly you showed me that one on the phone the other day yeah, a little yeah, bit surprising. of a grind with the bench but um, well I was backing up in the same session so if I hit it fresh yep. I think it would have come up a bit better but the rest of the week for our listeners on uh, so I did lift on Monday benched and yep. then Tuesday was back uh, and also at the end of that session I also did car biceps triceps and that was all blood flow restriction so occluded uh, uh, arms for the biceps triceps yep. five sets of 15 something simple like a, a curl and a press down five sets of 15 and then five sets of uh, 15 on the calves uh, and that was at the end of both of those workouts yep. and then on the other two days so on tuesday and friday it was back delts and again occlusion because small muscle groups yes bicep uh uh, tricep and calf so I was including say four times a week yep. and then on the Wednesday and the Saturday that was my leg day and, and legs my knees are just not uh, you know getting on and I can't seem to uh, put a lot through the knees if I spend a lot of time warming up and going through I mean you, you, yeah, you know first hand what, what it's like that. to squat yep. and I just uh, haven't got the patience to do that at the moment so um I just do volume 10 by 10. Uh, I mean, I'm using the pendulum squat at the moment, but that and, a, and some sort of leg curl variation and then walking lunges at the end of it. Uh, okay. Some sort of lunging or split squat variation. Twice a week for quads. Yep. Pretty much everything twice a week. Um, Bias tries, uh, calves four times a week. So a lot of frequency. Okay. Uh, so yeah. my, next, my next question for you, mate, is um, many people, well, we've had Damon Hayhow on this program yep. talk about it, that with any significant amount of poundage that you put onto some of those big lifts yep. i.e. a deadlift and a bench 
there should be an associated uh, amount muscle of mass. muscle mass. So sure. what have you done on the scales? Mate, um, everyone sort of said, oh, you know, you're looking... Um, Looking uh, you like your training, which is good. Good yeah. feedback, I suppose. Hey, you, you, you do actually look like you lift some weight, which yep. is nice, refreshing. But I guess my body weight didn't change that much. I think my body composition changed. So yeah. I just was hulking around a little more than what I normally would. Yeah. You know, the shirt's a little bit tighter. Yeah, certainly. Um, I hadn't seen you in three weeks, and I noticed a bit of a, you look, looking pretty staunch. Yeah, but but the, the scales didn't necessarily reflect that. So I think with the hard training, I just was burning more calories, leaned out a little bit. And some muscle obviously went on, so okay, yeah, it was good. good. It was a, it was a good training block. So next pumped. question uh, and a quick one: uh, yep. the nervous system. How were you? You know, you said you <laughs> utilised a deload, not something yeah. you would typically do, but I yep. guess you mentioned powerlifters and people who strength compete in athletes, yeah. strength sports and everything. Uh, a deload is almost enforced by the nature of the training they do because yeah. the nervous system needs time to recover. Um, how did you find it? Yeah, look, I um, I did talk to you about this and. And I was quite, uh, I mean, the deadlift came up well, but I was a little bit jittery and the legs were a little bit shaky when I was going over to it because there's no one there. I mean, I, I, I dislike people, you know, being around me anyway, mm. you know, and just in general, life in general. Yes. But, <laughs> but certainly in the gym, I like to have a, a, you know, an empty gym with no one watching. It was just perfect. Like the lift performance center, Kato out there, um, that's where I'm training at, at the moment. But uh, it was just great. But I was a little bit shaky. Their legs were a little bit nervous, but it didn't, didn't look like that on, no. the, uh, on the lift. But yeah, my heart rate was... <laughs> I mean, that, that is one of the symptoms of overtraining. And, and I guess I was pretty gassed before I had that week off. And I actually went in there with, with various, still feeling pretty average. But then the, I started pulling in and it just felt light, felt light, yep. felt light. It was good. But um, yeah, I dare say, I think I, I built up a certain level of fatigue. But the heart rate, like I told you, that was, a, I think I finished lifting at about 3.30. And then come 10 p.m. at night, my heart rate was still about 100. And uh yeah, when I woke up the next morning, it was back down to normal. But the nervous system was certainly uh, well and truly agitated after I'd, I'd done two PBs. So, yep. yeah, pretty full on. But I guess um, then I uh, sort of uh, went back through a few notes and, and things like that. And, uh, again, referencing um, Israel, he, he talks about fatigue management being a, a huge player on, on progress. And even Dylan sort of, um, he kept saying, you know, fatigue masks strength. You know, you you feel fatigued and you're actually developing some pretty good strength, but the fatigue is just too much for you to actually, that's why the deload, he kept, uh, (laughs) I remember he's, you know, you know, you got someone on your shoulder saying fatigue masks strength and it it kept sort of echoing in my ear. So I was like, no, no, deload, it's fine. Yeah. Mate, it's a very valid point. It's something as, I guess, us, we specialize in body composition, which we, we don't probably think about that as much no. as what we probably should actually yeah, but it's that is the whole part of the stress recovery adaptation cycle yeah i mean the 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 ultimate hypertrophy program is enough frequency uh, that you can recover from yeah so most people you know they sort of say most people don't overtrain they just under recover so mm. you know i guess thinking about that you've been aware of what uh, what muscle groups need a bit longer to recover but the reality is for most of us out there unless we're you know an IFBB pro with you know uh, 34 inch quads you know you could probably train legs twice a week and it, you're not going to be yeah. overtraining them you know once a week is they're not going to grow you know to yeah. any real significance so I think frequency is a big thing that um, that I've really uh, adjusted more with my clientele of late and, and things like delts you know hit them multiple times a week you know not shoulders once a week it's sure pressing maybe once a week but Mm. like the medial anterior and posterior 
four or five times a week, hit them up. Yep. Uh, same with biceps, a ton, calves, a ton, mm. triceps, not so much. And, you know, your chest and back and quads and hamstrings, maybe twice a week. But those small muscle groups really fry them. But the deloading, uh, you might use a four once, a four weeks on, one week off, where with the deload, intensity is high, but you just cut the volume. So yep. you might normally do six sets of five, so you do three sets of five and you keep the numbers up. But reduced volume or a five one or a six one ratio you can use depending on the individual but more frequent than that sort of uh every four to six weeks you're training too hard yep okay it's just you're just cramming too much less frequent than four to six weeks no i can go three months without a deload strength training it's like dude you're not lifting you're not training hard enough so yeah think about that and um and even for it's a little more obvious i guess for uh you know strength or you know, power athlete, but for hypertrophy, the rest of us that do exist in that physique world, you know, Israel sort of suggests, um, you know, taking that that three, uh, three or four weeks off uh, in a twelve month block, so eleven months. You know, obviously do your deloading throughout, but like a full uh, block, which uh, most of us never do, mm. uh, where you just lift lighter loads and um, really take your foot off the gas pedal, and 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 things like tendons and and, and bone health and. You know, all those sorts of things tend to uh, recover from the, the rigors of, of training nonstop. So just some things to think about there. But uh, yeah, overtraining and uh, the nervous system and everything else. So, But heart rate, a big one. So, mm. you know, if you find your heart rate's jacked all the time, you know, good good chance you're overtraining. The nervous system is a bit fried. Uh, bit yeah. fried, exactly. Okay. But there's a ton of other things you can look at too with overtraining, but lots of uh, insomnia, you know, uh, lots of libido, lots of motivation, depression. Yeah, injuries um, and a lack of performance can also all be uh, signs of overtraining and the need for a deload. Now, well done, mate. That was a productive time for you. And uh, segue nicely into uh, what I'm going to talk about because essentially I've just had that three-week block thongs on. of uh, thongs on and uh, training intensity. Low cortisol. Very, very low cortisol. Good. Um, but what I did do with... So I was uh, essentially on an adventure in a third-world country for three <laughs> weeks. Awesome. In, in the middle of a jungle. But I did have access to a, a gym at various capital cities yep. when traveling like around. hotel gyms? Yeah, various hotel gyms and, yep. and things like that. So I probably, in the three weeks, I got about maybe half a dozen workouts in just enough to keep the sword sharp yep i did uh an 8 8 16 Ooh, but it's a tough one to not holiday. not in the typical sense that where we would think about overloading the same muscle group so okay. you say you're doing a back workout it might be eight pull-ups eight barbell rows and then 16 pull downs yep. for example i was doing total body so workout one was a romanian barbell deadlift uh, for eight, a walking lunge for eight, and then some sort of French press or tricep extension for 16. Very cool, mate. Then I would go into a 45-degree um, incline dumbbell press mm-hmm. with a bicep curl and then a calf raise. Okay. So I was just doing workouts like that, two of those, uh, similar sort of thing, one with a few split spots and leg curls, yep. just fluffing up every part of the body yep. in each workout because I wasn't sure when and where I was going to train, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what was interesting, mate, was that I had a no workout supplementation whatsoever, no post-workout shakes. Sometimes I would train and then go and have a swim in the pool and lie in the sun, and it might not be an hour or so until I actually ate. ate. The anabolic window time. <laughs> exactly, mate, exactly. And I preface this by saying by no means was I busting my balls. It was, yeah. ma- it was maintenance training. Yep. However, there was no significant loss in muscle mass at yep. all. Essentially, I ate two to three meals a day, yep. mixed meals, carbs, proteins, and fats at each one. Would you say they were a little more calorie dense than your normal meals? 
I would so say you were getting similar calories in, but only having fruit. Yeah, I would say I was I was hitting a, a surplus of calories okay. overall. Yep. Um, particularly the last meal, you know, go and have dinner, and then be some sort of uh, beverages passed around. Or, yep. You know, maybe a well, little, the thongs are on. A little Thai martini. A little loose. Or, yeah, that's right. Real loose <laughs> over in a uh, third world country. Yep. Um, but uh, essentially, you know, we've spoken about the anabolic window on this program before, yeah. and sure. If you're, if you're busting your balls and you're an advanced trainee, then yeah, cram in that protein shake and all yep. those carbs as soon as you can post-workout. But look, if you can't do it, don't sweat it, don't yep. stress, yep. hit your macros, and by the mm. end of the day, everything will be sweet. Yeah, That was how I operated, right? So yeah. that, that was all fine. Some interesting observations of when I was actually living in a, a village environment yeah. and watching native people go about their business. Yeah. One of them... Yep is that these people had incredibly good body composition. Mm. They were extremely lean. Mm. Uh, you're, you're a frumpy white male. There, <laughs> it's a frumpy you? white male, that's <laughs> right. And for any of our listeners that don't know Tom, he actually stays in uh, pretty good nick all year round. So, um, well, There was some novelty factor because they literally had not seen a white person in their village yeah. before, so it, it was quite interesting. It was actually quite racist. You know, They were uh, really <laughs> yeah. made you an outcast. You didn't feel comfortable. <laughs> that's right. Mm. Um, Reverse racism. But they would just eat organic foods that yeah. they would cook. Uh, and get off the land mm. um, and they did quite a lot but nothing too strenuous and they were so, just so a lot of neat they were moving around moving very around, active move, very active moving yep. around a lot but essentially uh, looking at them they've been in a, an energy balance which would be tipping into the deficit because they're just moving I'm somewhere. sure genetics plays a role but yeah. they're just super lean all over their body every skin fold is, is just translucent, translucent. Mm. the other observation is uh, mobility so mm. these people can sit down in a full squat position after grass <laughs> for hours all mm. day long. Mm. And I actually, I remember, and I think you did it, the Ben Pakowski muscle camp when he was out here yeah. a few years ago. And, did, yep, yep. and that was one of the things, an exercise he would do at the start is he'd get everyone to sit down in a squat and you'd have to stay there for a period of time. And he mm. would talk and present in that position for a mm. while. And if you move, you'd be like, what are you doing? Get mm. back down. Because mm. mm. emphasizing the point that that bottom position of a squat is a natural position for a human being to be in. Mm. Obviously, in that part of the world where they grow up with squat toilets from a very young age, mm. they just know how to squat and they mm. can sit down and squat. The dorsiflexion's there, the hip mobility. Is there any bum wink? <laughs> is there a bum wink? Very little bum wink as well. They're just mm. nice... It's a movement pattern that as humans we should be able to fulfill mm. and it's something that I think every human should spend a bit of time down the bottom of a squat every day because mm. the more time you spend in a full depth position, the easier <laughs> it is to be able to access that ongoing or loaded, yeah. you know, yeah, and that, 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 that's just a basic tenet of mobility, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's that mind-muscle connection is a, is a key factor and, you know, I was wondering why Cam and I were looking at each other because you're actually... <laughs> you're actually squatting down today on that yeah. on that stool and I was wondering why the hell you're doing that but that's your little 10 minutes of uh, yeah. squat position very good and I, I must say on a side note it's very effective for uh, bowel evacuations as well <laughs> I mean I think that's how the body was designed to do it because <laughs> everything just falls bombs out bombs away yes. bombs away yeah risky All right. fascinating so I guess it does come back to um, it comes you know, so calories are king huh? calories are king so yeah. what I would say is that maintenance training don't get stressed too anal mm. about supplementation as much yep. as we, we go on about, uh, you know, intra-workout carbohydrates and, and all this kind of stuff. Certain scenarios, they obviously play a key. They play a key role, but yep. for general population, no supplementation at all. If they're just training and eating well and moving a little bit, there's no reason why things shouldn't sort of balance themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, on that on that note, uh, while we wrap it up, I, 
we did speak about this and I said, well, yeah, I'm just sick of, even though I'm at home throughout the day and it's very easy for me to, to get up to, you know, but I've got to get up out of the chair, I've got to walk over to the, you know, the cook, you know, the stove, put the pan on, you know, turn it on, go in the fridge, get the meat out. It's tedious, Tom, you know, yes. it's time I could be sleeping on the couch, you know, <laughs> with my lady of leisure these days, but... But all jokes aside, like, I, I, I've just, for whatever reason, it's like, huh, I'm going to try eating three bigger meals instead of, you know, five or six, you know, with the meals mid-morning, just because I was, I, in all honesty, was busy doing so, I was in the city, whatever, yep. hard to get a meal in, didn't want to take my food in, uh, so I just resigned myself to the fact, and, and that was why I was doing the, while I was doing the actual hitting, uh, hitting your numbers, training, hitting yep. the numbers, so three meals a day, yep. fantastic, um, routine was good, I would go train, come home, eat. Uh, but yeah, it'd be five or six hours, uh, four or five hours between meals. And if mm. you think about how long it actually takes, uh, how you know the nutrients are postprandial uh, in a postprandial state. I mean, it, it does take that probably closer to that five or six hours mm. for the meal to be fully digested. So, you know, I think the thing is lots of frequent meals. Okay, you get um, you know that that uh, anim- the uh, syn- synthetic rate is yeah, always sort of ticking over. Yeah, or you have three bigger meals and you get a, b- a bigger anabolic response after the meal. Yeah, right. So the actual, but the muscle signaling from that meal is actually a, a, a bigger signal. Yeah, that's how I understand it. So um, Than what it would be having smaller, more frequent meals where you're getting a, a smaller but more consistent signaling of uh, exactly. protein Exactly, simply because the, you've got that muscle full effect. There's already, you know, uh, amino acids are there. You're already still digesting the meal from the one earlier. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it, it's worked well, you know, mm. and um, satiety is fine. Obviously, have uh, it's, it's more calorie dense because I'm only having three. Yep. But um, yeah, it's just, I don't have to spend so much time. Uh, but for me as well, like I, I can't train within, you know, two or three hours of eating. So for me, it was uh, really helped my training yes. as well. I think. Well, mate, maybe we should change the uh, the podcast from uh, Under the Bar to Calories a King. Calories a King. Okay, Rawdon, last episode with Wolfgang, we had part one of Luke Tullock's expose on insulin. Expose, yep. <laughs> insulin and fat loss. Now we're going to talk about insulin and hypertrophy. Yep. Yeah, so look, the idea in terms of muscle building is that we have a balance between catabolic processes and anabolic processes. Okay. And so net protein synthesis is a result of how much protein building you have and how much protein loss you have. Now, insulin can upregulate anabolic enzymatic activity in the muscle, and it can also downregulate catabolic enzymatic activity in the muscle. In other words, it can reduce breakdown and it can promote building. Okay. okay. Uh, the main benefit of having elevated insulin, though, I think is really the anti catabolic properties. In other words, it limits breakdown. Um, okay. And that's certainly something that we want to achieve after training. So in that case, you do want to have some sort of insulin elevation to promote recovery. Okay. Insulin is also obviously useful for replenishing glycogen. Yep. But uh, the glycogen argument is an interesting one because, in my opinion, unless you need topped-up glycogen stores again very soon after your training bout, I don't see the point in replenishing it super quickly. I would say that uh, if you're training multiple times a day yeah. in activities that are quite glycogen dependent, um, you know, your glycogen has like another 24 hours to be replenished before you have to worry about it. Again. Yeah, yeah, and that's the, I mean, we've spoken about this um, back at uh, Lift HQ, mate, where yeah, right. w- w- we spoke about, um, 
you know, glycogen resynthesis will occur uh, within a 24-hour period regardless. There's an optimal time, so if you needed to do twice a day, then post-exercise, mm. it would be, you know, glute 4, muscle cells, insulin, those sorts of things, obviously, uh, be beneficial, but uh, people seem to sweat that, that detail fastidiously, and, you know, I think um, the reality is that <clears throat> as long as you consume carbohydrates within that, that 24-hour period, you, you're going to have glycogen stores topped up to a level that's adequate to training. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. In terms of the, the timing of the carbohydrates, mm. is there any spillover that you might get whether you have all those carbs in a, in a small window straight after training or the same amount later in the day drip fed there's been some research on that it appears that there's no difference no difference yeah okay um whether it's high gi low gi it'll accomplish the same the same amount of, re- of research all comes out in the wash how long is that piece of string that's right see <laughs> wait a second so um uh, groundskeeper Willie, you, you're suggesting that uh, powerlifters don't need to go and uh, engorge themselves on uh, whey shakes and uh, oh, yeah. you know 100 grams of carbs and you know a bowl of pasta <laughs> and everything else after they train. Yeah, I think I broke this. I broke this to John <laughs> over to John at, at like, lift, and he was the? devastated. Yeah, no, yeah, he didn't buy that one. I think no. That's when his eyes roll back. <laughs> and, uh, there goes Luke again. I still, mm, I goes. still see the powerlifters walking in with their <laughs> rock star energy drinks and their that's Red it, Bulls, get a bit of it. sugar in before their 20 reps. <laughs> Yeah, total workout. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Funny. Yeah, so All right. uh, let's talk a little bit about spiking insulin post-workout to try and limit the catabolism, the okay. muscle breakdown that okay. occurs. Uh, obviously, in the post-train state, muscles are highly receptive to incoming calories, incoming nutrients. We have glute 4 translocation occurring, which is an insulin-independent um, glucose transporter. Uh, <laughs> which has been spoken about a little bit before on this podcast. Um, I want to kind of make a point that there's always a basal level of insulin that's floating around. Okay. So there's always a little bit of insulin in your blood. And uh, it's equivalent to about 5 to 10 units per liter of, of blood. Um, so we're going to use that as a little bit of a reference point because the question that comes to my mind is how much do you actually have to elevate insulin to maximally stimulate protein synthesis. Okay. Yep. There's got to be a limit. Otherwise, we would just be able to spike insulin through the roof and just get absolutely yoked yeah. within <laughs> two weeks. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, so there have been a few studies that have investigated like how much do you actually have to spike insulin up to maximally stimulate protein synthesis. Uh, Rennie in 2006, these guys and colleagues, I should say, used a high level of amino acids. Um infused into the bloodstream and they elevated insulin to about 15 units remember basal levels about five to ten units and they found that there was no further inhibition of protein breakdown beyond 15 units so we're talking maybe one and a half to two times above basal levels to maximally arrest protein breakdown which is not very much Uh, you can achieve probably yeah. four to five times your basal levels with just a normal mixed meal within 30 minutes of, right. of ingestion. Yeah, that, that puts it in perspective. So yeah, that right. puts it in a bit of perspective. Uh, okay. There's a guy called Greenhalf and his team in 2008 and they found that at about 30 units per liter of blood, you could maximally stimulate protein synthesis. So that's a little higher, but again, okay. we're looking in the region of maybe oh, three to four times okay. basal levels. Yep. Again, mixed meal. Uh, Tick. Yeah, a typical mixed meal can raise insulin to this level within 30 minutes and can actually raise it beyond that within an hour. Uh, so, 
this idea of having to slam, you know, simple carbs, processed whey as soon as you finish your workout to try and get insulin up as quick as possible doesn't hold water if we if we take these studies as an example. Yeah. Um, and th- is that also because um, the anabolic window, you know, goes for up to 48 hours for beginners and all that type of stuff. But mm-hmm. the the window post training also takes a while to actually peak, doesn't it? Like we yeah. train and. And, and the reality is, like immediately after training, the, the, the anabolic window is still sort of climbing. So really, um, you know, when you need to ingest uh, for, the, for the peak anabolic window sort of is, is debatable, debatable as well. I think it is debatable, yeah. You know, so look, I would say you do want to get some nutrients in after you've trained. But whether it's trying to really spike your insulin up within like 30 minutes of finishing, honestly, I don't think you could in good conscience recommend that if you've looked at the research so yeah. if um, if eating a mixed meal some protein carbs and fats mm. can potentially spike insulin three to four times what the the standard flatlining rate is yeah if you were to have a, a big sugary high GI shake 100 yeah. grams of carbs 40 ha- grams away how high would it go look potentially uh, depends on the person but I mean it could go as much as sort of I don't know five six times a bit more yep um but above about three or four times, you're not really getting much extra benefit. No extra so benefit, to yep. my mind, I would rather eat 100 grams of carbs, mostly in the form of gelato, preferably. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> well, know. I was going to ask you, uh, Fanny asked, told me to ask you, quiz you on the gelato, whether it had a role in... Uh, but obviously, clearly, you've uh, pointed works, out that uh, yes. you need works. gelato post-workout. That's the take-home message for us. <laughs> one litre of gelato <laughs> in one sitting is the standard prescription. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. You're worthy of the uh, the podcast, mate, with that yes. sort of behaviour. Tom, yes. you've got some uh, catching up to do. to do. Mm. Yeah. Um, All right. You know, the other interesting point is that actually you can uh, produce an insulin response before your training by eating a meal or mm. having a shake or something like that. And that insulin response will probably still be elevated by the time you finish your workout. Okay. Yeah. So uh, there's a guy called Kevin Tipton who's a Canadian guy and he's, uh, uh, he's very interactive on Twitter. He's really smart. He's done a lot of uh, work on amino acid metabolism. And he way back in 2001, he actually looked at using only 6 grams of essential amino acids and 35 grams of sucrose an hour before trading and he found that it was enough to keep insulin elevated to 4 times above fasting levels 2 hours after your training after the workout so this is we're probably I think we're talking about 3.5 to 4 hours after ingestion of 6 grams of amino acids and 35 grams of sugar and insulin was still elevated to about 4 times it's basal okay. level fascinating which is pretty interesting because most of us eat before we train yeah. I mean yeah. you have to remember that as soon as we have our first meal the likelihood that we're going to enter a post-absorbative state where everything is absorbed <laughs> into our bloodstream and gone is really small the yeah. only time we're in that state is when we first wake up in the morning and throughout yeah. the day we have this overlapping of every yeah. meal we eat it's always drip feeding a little it's bit it's always drip feeding yeah. a little bit you know uh, these guys did a follow-up study in 2007 and they just used 20 grams of whey pre-workout and they had a similar result. And, okay. uh, you know, I'd hazard a guess that most guys out there are not using only 20 grams of whey. Yeah. They're probably eating before workout and then having, you know, at least yeah. double that post-workout, yeah. you know. Yeah. So you're having a large amount of nutrients uh, in the bloodstream that have the potential to elevate insulin way above what you need for protein synthesis, Okay. Um, you know, within like a three-hour period. So uh, do you need to elevate insulin post-workout to maximize the anabolic response yes you do but the amount you need to elevate it by is actually not as high as a lot of people think yeah okay 
In terms of the, the anti-catabolic effect of getting some, some insulin response post-workout, if you could just explain, so obviously the, the goal of a workout is to try and break down as much, you know, yeah. cause metabolic damage, break down some muscle tissue. Yeah. So I'm assuming then that once you've finished training and dropped all the weights and toweling down, there's still some breaking down going on. Is that yeah. what we're... Yeah. And so getting insulin or nutrients in at some stage soon after, that's going to what slow that process of yeah. the muscle breakage continuing exactly so it will uh, slow down the catabolic processes slow down the breakdown and it will also promote you know building uh, muscle building or proteosynthesis right. to sort of replace so the damaged structures and would that be an argument to get it in sooner like it, it could it, be yeah. is the sooner you stop the catabolic effect better yeah I mean that's that's the question uh, how soon do you have to do it to actually you know get the most out of it and the issue is with a lot of the research is that to study the effect of something, you have to try and eliminate as many variables as you can. So yeah. when they look at this insulin spiking stuff, what they'll often do is they'll have guys train in a fasted state. Okay. So they'll wake up, they'll go to the lab, they'll do their training bout, and then they'll give them the meal or the shake or the whatever that they want to test after their training. And this is the first nutrients they've seen for the day. Yep. And that is not applicable in most real-world conditions. In most real-world conditions, like I mentioned before, we've eaten a meal before we go and train, yeah. maybe yeah. several meals. Yeah. And so the response may be different. It may mean that if you eat a meal before training, and this is what I think is true, if you eat a meal before training at some point, um, the likelihood of you needing to slam nutrients in as soon as possible when you're done is much, much lower. Yeah, so I'm cool with a guy eating a meal like two hours before training, eating another meal like an hour and a half later after he's finished his mm. workout. And I have no doubt that that is maximally stimulating protein synthesis. However, if you have a guy who's training, say, first thing in the morning, and he doesn't like to eat first thing in the morning, in that case, I would definitely be getting him to get some nutrients in as soon as, as, as he possibly as can. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And even uh, on that point there, if even if they don't like to have a, a mixed meal before they train, having some essentials or, like you said, a... 10, yeah. 20 gram serve of uh, of whey pre-training would be beneficial as well. Oh, totally. It's all right. good. In these so studies, Luke, do you know what kind of training these guys have actually doing during the studies? Is yeah, it, is it most valid? of the studies are a little bit lame. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah. it's, it's funny because you look at um, biology studies and in particular nutrition studies and biology and if you had like a physicist or a chemist who can really control the variables in their experiments, look at like nutrition studies I mean it's it's laughable to them that this is even considered scientific yeah, research because yeah, yeah, yeah. there's so much you can't control mm, yeah. it's the best we got though so we mm. have to take what we can and I think of you know the, the body of evidence that we do have I think I've cited maybe 14 or 15 studies today mm, mm. Um, the body of the evidence all agrees with each other so if we can have multiple studies that look at different demographics and have slightly different setups all agreeing with each other, yeah. then you've got a pretty good idea of what the truth actually is. Yeah. Okay. Um, there is, uh, isn't there, a, uh, in regards to, uh, and again, it was referenced from a, um, I saw a uh, clip that Menno was talking about, but the, the anabolic window for beginners, it's long, 48 hours, yep, mm. great. But for advanced trainees, it is much uh, shorter and more abrupt. So yeah. the more uh, advanced the trainee uh, and that would make sense because they they don't break as much muscle tissue down yeah, because exactly. they're advanced. You're not yeah, actually yeah. creating that much uh, stress on the muscle to warrant a 48-hour recovery. So yes. the window for an advanced trainee is is a bit shorter. So for someone that is more advanced, perhaps you know that workout post-workout supplementation might actually be more yeah. significant. Mm. And you know, there's there's the intra-workout stuff as well. That's that's quite interesting to me. Like uh, Milos is a big fan of that, yep. and uh, John, John Meadows, Meadows is yep. a massive yep. fan mm. of that, and he. Uh, attests to 
you know, mm. not getting muscle soreness, even though he, he trains brutally hard yeah. during periods. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's not a lot of studies on that or mm. no studies really with the sort of training intensity on that. But, no. yeah. you know, it's an inter- interesting idea that maybe shoving in a lot of nutrients and raising insulin a lot potentially limiting catabolism during the training might be helpful Mm. um you know it's an interesting idea just on that point there just clarify i think this is what you were sort of alluding to with the what you spoke about a second ago so is it the the process of hypertrophy is that net 24 hour positive protein balance so Mm. there's more uh less in a 24-hour period less uh catabolism going on more anabolism and that uh puts you in a positive nitrogen balance and you're going to increase muscle mass um, now, is that influenced by how much muscle, like how much muscle you put on? Is that influenced by how much muscle you break down while you're training? And if so, would it then make, like logically, not to have these, you know, BCAAs, all these things that mitigate how much muscle you actually break down in session because you're going to break essentially more muscle tissue down, mm-hmm. one would think, and then you get more of an anabolic window thereafter, and then the nutrition afterwards would be the key mediator and uh you know you know what i mean if yeah, you, yeah it's a good point dampening the, the well, actual the, impact of the workout that's right yeah surely it would be less of mm. a, a, a a hypertrophy thereafter yeah. yeah yes no look it's a it's an interesting idea i don't think that trying to limit i mean <clears throat> i don't think that limiting catabolism too much is an issue Okay. Uh, you're always going to get a little bit of catabolism happening. I mean, it happens all the time, but uh, it's going to obviously elevate in response to exercise. We really want to, I think, focus on promoting uh, the anabolic response as much as possible. Yes. Um, so as an example, like mTOR can be stimulated through nutritional pathways, which is where we want to have our protein and so on, but it's also stimulated by the actual act of exercising, yeah. Yeah. independent of any nutritional signaling. Yep. Um, so I really think that's the main thing that you want to focus on. There is some stuff on... Uh, you know, you need a little bit of an inflammatory signaling response as yeah. well to, to cause muscle growth. And is that reactive? Uh, yeah, the, the ROS, yeah. And so, you know, potentially, yeah, the antioxidant thing can block that. So, I, yeah, I certainly see what you're getting at. Yeah. But I don't think it's really going to be an issue that you can sort of block catabolism too much that you don't get the same Okay, so, so to clarify for our listener and for me because I'm a little slow. So supplementing with aminos and, 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 and uh, glucose to, to fuel essentially like a, a ready fuel source while you're training mm. is not going to lessen the, the catabolic uh, effect of the workout hugely to dampen the anabolic response thereafter. It's just going to perhaps fuel the workout so you can actually, like the intensity that you could hit supplementing better. Yeah. Would, yeah. would sort of outweigh, yeah. you know, uh, less breakdown yeah. whilst training i suppose yeah okay. i agree with that i think certainly the goal of the work of the pre and post workout nutrition is always to limit catabolism as much as possible yep okay. and then promote a, a, you know anabolism as well all right well okay there we have it very good thank you yeah. luke a wealth of knowledge once again and some uh, studies to back it up which is what we're sorely lacking on this program <laughs> bro, isn't it? yeah we, uh, any actual science <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> theories and it's just yours and my theory really yeah. but uh, that's awesome luke Well, fascinating stuff there, uh, Rawdon. And once again, I think with all of these, as complex as you can get with the actual system involved, hmm. the influencing factors from a lifestyle and training perspective are usually pretty basic. Yeah, and I think that's the refreshing thing that uh, Luke really uh, brings to the table is, well, you know, you stick to the fundamentals, eat, you know, good food, get some greens in there, you know, a few uh, 
Caribbean spices and you'll be fine. Yeah. So yeah, it's um, love his work. Interesting. Okay. Uh, let's have a chat with Nelson Virgil. Yes. Well, uh, episode number one for 2016. It's a big on, one. On the uh, Icon Performance Health Podcast with Tom and Rawdon. And uh, Rawdon, as we mentioned at the top of the show, our very special guest is Nelson Virgil. He's someone that you've been following for a while. You've been on the yeah. uh, Excel Mail forum for a period of time. Yeah, yeah. I've been on there and uh, thrown a couple of silly questions up, but they got answered, thankfully, for the guys there. Um, but yeah, for quite some time I've been following Nelson. He's got a few books out that I've got. And then uh, on the XL Mail, really good resource for, um, you know, aging males. And, and, yeah. I, and <laughs> I, I fall into that bracket being uh, 40 plus. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, a wealth of knowledge and a, a, good, a very good resource for our listeners. Yes. So he was on our radar as one of our guests for, for quite a while. Yeah. And then recently I've taken on a client who um, has worked quite closely with Nelson and that really mm. brought him into focus for us. And we thought, okay, yeah, good, let's get him on. Yep. The particular client that I, I have, he... Um, I guess made some sillier decisions early in life in his late teens and mm. uh, used anabolic steroids for a period of time um, without much educational thought process behind it really yep. and as a result of that he had to Disrupt live his. with the, I guess the, all the negative effects of, of um, yeah, post cycle post cycle and that sort of stuff yeah, yeah. W- without the right therapies in place and he was a he's a businessman he's very successful and he basically went and worked personally with Nelson to correct his whole hormonal balance yep. get his health back on track and uh, speaks incredibly highly of Nelson and the work that he did Yep. so apart from being a real expert on testosterone and hormone replacement therapy his skill set now uh, Nelson's goes beyond well and above and beyond that and, and just yep. into performance in general and, and healthy healthy living for men awesome so uh, it's a real pleasure to have Nelson on the line he's uh, in Houston Texas I believe so Nelson thank you for your time and uh, welcome to the podcast Hey, thanks, guys. I'm, I'm honored, and thank you for having me on. Excellent. So, Nelson, we'll get into uh, your books and, and some of the stuff that you're doing online a bit later in the show, but just to give the guys listening a bit of a, an insight into your life story, because it, it's quite fascinating. Can you, um, I guess, start off with your life in Venezuela and how you have moved to the States and the whole process along the way to leading the life that you live now today? Well, I'm going to try to be uh, brief because it sounds like a... Uh, like a soap opera, basically, when I start talking about my life. Yeah, yeah. People tell me, when are you going to write a book about your life? I says, you know, I don't not really think I will. But anyways, but I could probably have a movie. But, you know, I was just a regular boy growing in Venezuela, Maracaibo, is in South America, the northern side. Um, oil, it's an oil country. It was it was uh, amazing, amazing country back in the days. But now, obviously, it's uh, been taken over by by corrupted um, what they call communists, but they they really are not. So, but anyways, let me not get into that side of the uh, politician yeah. uh, world. But um, you know, and and um, you know, as an early, in an early age, I started getting an idea that I was probably gay <laughs> yep. and obviously after a few years uh, it kind of uh, was, was, was obvious uh, to me um, it takes a while even for gay people to come to terms with, uh, with their um, you know being gay and especially mm. in a country where uh, it's very conservative and mm. I was going to Catholic school and being told that uh, this whole thing is a sin and I was going yeah. to go to hell so yeah. obviously that, that can affect uh, all, although things have changed now the world is a, a lot better in many places but anyways so I um, always wanted to um, 
being uh, in science and um, I used to basically try to gain friends by doing their homework. Um, <laughs> that's how I gained. I was a little fat, chubby boy, uh, you know, kind of a geek. Yep. And um, that's how I, I realized that doing somebody's homework uh, gets you friendship right away. So I, I, that's when I started getting, hmm, maybe I should, be, I should be an expert on something and help people so they like me right away. So that's how the whole thing started. And then uh, I applied for a scholarship, and the government sent me to Montreal, to McGill University, and went to school there for chemical engineering. Uh, okay. Finished school, went back home for a while, worked there in the oil industry, and decided to move to the United States, uh, not only because of my being gay, but also because I wanted to expand my, my education here, and I made somebody special here in Houston. That was, what, uh, 31 years ago, and here I am. <laughs> uh, right after uh, six months or so after I got here in the United States with big dreams, I found out, um, you know, I, I got, I was hearing about this horrible HIV thing happening and people dying all over. And obviously I knew I was gay, and although I was just beginning in my sexual process, uh, I think I was exposed early enough um, so that I turned up positive in 19, uh, early 1985, when basically we just had found out it was a virus, and we found in the world that there's a test. So that's when I got tested very early on, when there was nothing, no ACT, no medications, nothing but... Yep despair and, and anxiety and that was probably the worst day of my entire life that's for sure yeah. uh, i was only what 24 25 i forget i was a young guy trying to you know make it big in in the states you know immigrating yeah. from south america so that was a big hit and um i decided well i had to i cried for two or three days i forget i just yeah and then i sat down and said you know what are you gonna do are you gonna let yourself die or are you gonna take over and and uh, study as much as you can about this this damn bug. Obviously, we didn't know much about it back then, but I became obsessed. And this is obviously before the internet. You know, remember the internet? We started getting internet access here in '92, '93. You know, as a, as a in general, it was a dial-up. But back then, in the '80s, we had nothing to to educate ourselves except going to a library. So that's how I got a lot of the info then and became right away uh, uh, trained by the U.S. government. I said, you know, I'm working, uh, I was working for oil, for Shell oil, um, in oil and refinery. And then at night I would uh, volunteer for a clinic here in Houston to um, that tested people for HIV and, and, and told them the, the results. So I became that. I became a counselor. Um, just trained, you know, I don't have much of a training. I just got a little course from the government. So I became counseling people, obviously, telling them, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, you're HIV positive. And, and so am I. And, you know, we're, we're going to beat this. And obviously, everybody would start crying and screaming because that was a death sentence back there. Mm. So it was, it was uh, that's when I got, I got the feeling of what it is to, to help people to get out of my own head, um, basically, because obviously I could get depressed and die and the immune system gets basically depleted when you have um, depression and, and I knew that right away. Mm. So, um, so that's when I started really having that taste for educating myself and helping others that may not be in the same um, boat as me or maybe earlier in their path. So that's when, and that's whole, my whole life as a counselor, as a coach, as a health educator started then, became uh, more and more of an activist. And uh, obviously uh, after a while, I was not, I thought that was my life purpose. So being an engineer felt kind of um, not important to me. So I, 
I, I did something crazy. I left uh, my job, which was a great job, and I started my own nonprofit organization in 1984. And that happened for a good reason. Um, I, I, I was wasting, my friends were dying. Uh, my first uh, partner who I moved here to Houston for was starting to lose weight and, and become real thin. And uh, I was meeting a lot of guys that were just becoming thin. And some of them would have uh, spots on their faces. Some of them, it was obvious that they had AIDS, HIV. They, AIDS is actually the later stage of HIV. And uh, I got terrified. I said, you know, I'm positive. I, I do not want to die or, or in bones. And I, and I was very, in a way, I didn't want people to, you know, it was almost like advertising your, <laughs> your yeah. status. Mm -hmm. So I became very obsessed with, uh, with how to reverse and prevent wasting syndrome. And I became basically, and there was nothing. There, back then, doctors will say, you know, there's nothing we can do. Try to eat as well as you can. Try to eat ice cream. Try to eat, uh, you know, high calorie foods. But uh, most people were dying of wasting. The second cause of AIDS uh, death back then were the loss of muscle mass and, and body weight due to the infection itself. So, um, you know, so I became obsessed. I just, uh, I could not get it out of my head. And I, I, I was lucky enough to read a magazine that you guys, well, you guys are probably too young, called Muscle Media 2000. Uh, it was a nice kind of a science bodybuilding magazine here. And, and I, in there, I saw an article of this doctor. He, he didn't want to disclose his name. His name was Dr. X, a doctor with HIV that was uh, trying anabolic steroids and had uh, gained uh, a lot of the weight he had lost. So right away I knew I, I wanted to explore that and uh, and that's how I got to it. And he eventually developed AIDS and in, in not AIDS but actually uh, it's a long story but it's a CMV retinitis is they basically HIV patients lose their sight if they if their immune system drops um, a lot so he decided to uh, commit suicide and he sent me um, a bunch of uh, material because he was writing a book on the use of anabolic steroids and HIV wasting. So he called me and said, "Listen, um, I think you are you are the closest thing that I can, uh, person that I can trust, and I want you to finish the book." So that's what I did. I, I took his material and, and did a lot more research and, and published a book called uh, "Built to Survive" in 1984. So mm. with uh, Michael Mooney, who became a really good friend of mine. And that book basically changed uh, many things. And I'm not taking all the credit, but many things because I was, I, was talking to, I was talking to doctors and patients about anabolic steroids um, used, uh, clinically used to reverse wasting syndrome. And obviously, most people thought I was crazy, but they knew there was something to it. And some researchers would say, well, you know, I think it's going to kill you, but you guys are going to die anyway. So, of course, it never said that directly. But, you know, you're, it may be a good thing just to try since the risk to benefit ratio is, is such in, in, in your population that, hey, you know, let's see. So they started actually researching anabolic steroids, the government, the U.S. government, after a lot of activism uh, from me and, and my guys um, started spending money on funding uh, research on anabolic steroids and HIV wasting. And there were easily 12 studies funded by taxpayer money here in the United States uh, back in the 90s. And, and that actually opened the door to 
the clinical use and, 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 and many people start reversing their wasting syndrome before 96, which is a year that we, we started getting the better drugs that, that eventually help people social, social, to survive. So, so hey, yeah, that was my story at the beginning. And then obviously wasting became a little bit of a, a much less of a problem because people started getting on their medications and, and decreasing the viral load. And I said, hmm, maybe I can apply what I've learned in wasting and, and, and metabolics into general men's health. Uh, and that's what I did. I, I transitioned into uh, men's health and uh, opened my website, excelmail.com, mm -hmm. and wrote another book on testosterone. It's called Testosterone and Men's Guide. And, um, and I'm, I've, I'm a coach. I do Skype coaching sessions all over the world and, and lecture on the subject, train doctors too, and work with different clinics. So, you know, I'm, I'm all in the men's health uh, world. I think uh, it, my unfortunate situation of having a chronic illness that could kill me, I think it was probably a, a good thing for me that propelled me to learn what I, I know now. And so something as bad as HIV can actually turn out to be a good thing if you know how to turn it around. So that's, that's I'm going to stop here because I yeah. talk too much. <laughs> yeah, no. No, well, that's uh, fascinating, Nelson. And if you hadn't had the, the test and originally gone off your own bat to go and get tested, when do you think you would have started to notice that something was going wrong? I mean, when did the actual side effects start to manifest? Well, uh, because, I, you know, remember that I... I could not get on treatment, on effective treatment, till the late 90s. So I basically, in my first 20 years of HIV, I, I, I was not treated. Yeah. So I was watching my immune system go down, not as fast as most, most people. Because as I said, I started doing injecting in 92, 93, uh, testosterone and anabolic steroids, and I gained 35, 40 pounds and completely bounced me back and actually stabilized my immune system. It did not do much about HIV. The HIV virus was still replicating, but it could not eat away because what happens with the immune system when you have an infection is that it draws uh, all the nutrients from lean body mass. So it's almost like, right. you know, your body's trying to eat from your own body, your immune system yes. to defend itself. So uh, once I gained those 35, 40 pounds, look better, obviously. I, I felt better about myself. Felt like I was not gonna die eventually. Um, yeah. Although I knew, obviously, this was not a cure. I um, that's that's when everything clicked. Okay. So uh, I I had symptoms, you know, diarrhea, and we had thrush in the mouth, and but I was looking around trying to preach to everybody around me because I saw guys that did not want to listen to my message that ended up dying. I had over over 32 of my friends I could not help because mm. it was uh, they died mostly in the 80s and early 90s, and so I became I, I swear I, I because I said well you know um. I don't. I don't care. I'm gonna be out of the closet about this. I'm gonna. I'm gonna make sure everybody knows about it. But uh, some people basically were too uh, afraid to talk to the doctors about about anabolics. Yes. Yeah. I guess in that scenario, you can go one of two ways: either turn inwards and not cope with it, or turn out and try and learn everything you can. Do what you did. Um, tackle it head on. Yeah. Tackle it head on. And and when you started using the anabolics, Nelson, was it just the 
testosterone itself that helped you or did you realize that you needed to train as well to put on the lean mass oh, oh yeah i'm glad you brought that up because the way i talk it sounds like that's all i did um no obviously um the nutritional part is is, is as important or more in the exercise obviously um yeah. so yeah I, I i created a program called the power program which is uh, including not only the hormonal side, but it was also the nutritional um, advice and, and, and the supplementation. It's actually all summarized in the book Built to Survive or on my nonprofit uh, website, powerusa.org. Um, and that was actually used as a comprehensive approach by, and many doctors embraced this. I mean, I was so happy after, after a year or two that, and back then, like, <laughs> the only way to reach doctors were, was by fax. So I would fax all my fact sheets to a bunch of doctors around the country. So anyway, so yeah, that's that's a long answer for so, a short question. <laughs> so, so Nelson, regarding um, what you did, obviously using the anabolics in 92 and, and, and weight training and, and, the, and the nutrition and the, and the power program like you described, were you still lucky? Because I mean, I think you're, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong, I'm 56 now. So it's, yeah. you had actually for you know, 30, 30 years, 30 years yeah. or so. Are you one of the lucky ones or was it your strategic? Yeah, you know, like, we there is still a few of us left. Um, um, we even have a, a Facebook group, <laughs> the long-term yeah. survivors. I think wow. there are maybe a thousand in that group. But yeah, we're a very minority. You know, there's 35 million people with HIV around the world. And um, I would say a third of them don't know they have HIV. So those people are at high risk of death. Uh, they eventually find out, uh, as you said, if you ask me, um, but sometimes they find out um, in their emergency room with uh, an infection. So, and out of the 35, there's 1.5 million here in the States. And out of those, um, maybe not less than 5% um, are people like me. People are still alive after 25 years, and, and it, there's probably no more than no more than 10,000 of us. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, nobody has really estimated, but they're we're the lucky few. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and like the development in uh, pharmaceuticals these days is is the treatment or the prognosis a lot better these days. Obviously, when it f- you first uh, were diagnosed with it, there was nothing then, but has it been getting better and better and better and closer to oh, a cure yeah. over the it's, years? It's amazing. It's, it, it's amazing. Let me just tell you, ACT used to, is a drug back then, obviously all of you, even the youngsters have heard about ACT and HIV back then. We used to use it as a monotherapy. It was highly toxic. We took it four times a day. It would, it would actually help with the virus for a while but the virus will mutate. So the virus needs at least three medications in combination to hit different angles of its life cycle. So this virus is so super smart. That's why it's still around. And by the way, we only have one person that has been cured, that's a long story too. But um, the fact is that the pharmaceutical industry, and yes, there have been a lot of uh, abuses by by pharmaceuticals under pricing have created now like what we have seven classes of HIV medications some of them have such um, like almost clean no side effects whatsoever so we've come a long way we used to take meds four times a day now people can take medications one time a day um, a combination of three pills into one little pill and get this this is the most exciting part that most people don't know within maybe two and a half years to three years we're gonna have an injection once a month 
and no and no orals. We don't. Most of us will will not take daily medications. We'll just get a, a, a shot, yep. and that will stay in our system for for a month or a month or two. But they're they're thinking more of a month, and that's actually already in 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 phase two research. So and it's looking Beautiful. good. So. Tell me, uh, just so we won't keep going uh, talking about HIV. We'll get onto the men's health and testosterone, and um, a little more applicable to our, our uh, listeners. But um, with the treating the HIV these days, is it still similar to what you did? Like, uh, are using anabolics part of the the process, or is the medication? No, no, no longer. No, um, a lot of doctors have basically said, "Well, you know, I'm not gonna." And you know, since then. Uh, in the nineties, believe it or not, we anabolics had a bad reputation, but not as bad as now. Yeah. I think the media, the media and politicians, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, have pushed this this the demonization of anabolics. When in fact, anabolics are an ama- amazing drugs that can help a lot of people with wasting diseases. And also, and I'm going to say this on you know in an interview, I get criticized. Anybody that is educated and wants to do anabolic drugs can educate themselves to doing safely. Yeah. Uh, we even have a Facebook group called Anabolic Steroid Harm Reduction because I really believe that uh, a healthy program, even some people are going to say, well, I'm going to use them anyways. So I say, well, wait, wait a minute. If you're going to use them, at least educate yourself about your blood work, about your nutrition, your exercise, sure. how to minimize side effects. And that's what we call harm reduction. So yeah. it is a clinical uh, issue. Oh, people ask me, what am I going to do after I get off an anabolic steroid cycle? And there's also safer ways to do so. So even though it's, it's, it, anabolic steroid use is illegal in most countries, uh, yeah. um, Australia being one of them, in, in, and by the way, in Australia, and I'm going to digress, uh, Dr. Julian Gold in Sydney, uh, I don't even know if he's around or if he retired. He was, I haven't talked to him in a while. He was a pioneer in in the early stages of anabolic steroid research in HIV and and I want I want to thank Dr. Gold through this program because you guys are sure. in Sydney since uh, he he was one of the pioneers is an Australian doctor was a pioneer so I forgot to say that in the beginning so yes that, let me cut my answer right here otherwise I'll keep going so. yeah yeah well uh, Julian uh, Gold may be listening to the program so yes. there's a thank you from Nelson there yeah. Nelson so just for our, our listeners and me as well I, I mean I anabolics is not a part of my skill set can you just give a brief overview as to what the actual goal is with using exogenous testosterone to put on muscle mass and what's actually going on in the body when you do that yeah well that's actually a really good technical question let me try not to get too technical but um you know we 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 know that male many males many men not all not all we don't have a good a good sense of what percentage but we do tend to lose one percent a year of our testosterone production and what's happening now that many men are getting too much weight or are being exposed to environmental uh, toxins or other lifestyle issues that we have now we didn't used to have in the past uh, metabolic syndrome all that testosterone seems to be decreasing a lot faster in aging males so when we um, as men and women have testosterone too in a small concentration um, when you have uh, decreased testosterone you start losing obviously uh, sex drive your libido your mood uh, your weight that you handle stress uh, tends to be um, decreased um, erectile function tends to also uh, have, have problems there and you start losing even bone mass even lean body mass getting fat so all these aging related issues start accelerating um, and a lot of guys um, do not reach out for help because it's a very um, it's a highly uh, stigmatized uh, issue 
they are afraid to even talk to their friends about their problems uh, you know and that's why it's become easier for me to have a man now uh, email me because they're not looking at my face they don't know me and they actually tend to disclose a lot more even by email uh, when they email me at, uh, from my, my book has my email address anyways. Uh, but I find by talking to them after, after a while that they are isolated. They don't even talk to their friends or their doctors. Or when they go to their doctors, they find a stigma on that side too of, of the equation. Doctors are, are, don't have education. Some, some, most of them, even endocrinologists, don't, don't have um, training on testosterone replacement therapy. So they tend to um, scare the patient and tell them that you're going to get prostate cancer or it's going to be liver toxic and all this. The stuff that we have proven that is not not so so um so you start losing lean body mass the process basically is once your hormones and your thyroid also starts getting affected you do not absorb nutrients as well that's one of the biggest issues so you know and and the testosterone replacement market has obviously expanded and there's a lot of criticism. Uh, I'm sure in Australia, you, you guys have the same kind of discussions yeah. we have here. Yep. Although here we tend to be more, uh, <laughs> the United States tends to be more, uh, um, I would say, uh, there's a lot more pressure here, I think, from the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. So we have TV ads and we have other things, but um, but the educational part is missing. Most men, most men are not uh, educated by their doctors or they just only hear the negative things about testosterone replacement. Mm. So that's that's my goal on ExhaleMail.com and my books um, yes. to able to be able to educate guys about what what are the right questions. I mean, there's so many options now for treatment. Okay. So it gets it gets a little overwhelming, I have to say. Especially yes. imagine you have low testosterone, you cannot cope with decision making, and then you have to read and educate yourself about all this stuff. So most guys basically leave it up to their doctors, and their doctors may or may not make the right decision. Yes. Okay. Nelson, in reference to the lean body mass and, and maintaining muscle, you mentioned that you don't absorb nutrients as well when your testosterone levels are low. So is the muscle mass a function of having more of the hormone or a function of a better nutrient partitioning from the foods that you do eat? Definitely, definitely, um, both. Actually, there's a, there's a in both. And the fact is that when we have low testosterone, also we tend to be less active, exercise yep. less, obviously, eat less. So appetite goes down too. So there are all the factors to to the loss of lean body mass and testosterone. Replacing it will make you feel better to exercise. It will increase your appetite. So there is a there's a variable there for lean for weight and lean body mass gain. Um, although you can also get fat, obviously. So there are many many factors involved on what happens when you normalize testosterone. And I'm not talking only about testosterone. Thyroid is the same thing. I mean, low thyroid has more or less the same symptoms, uh, shows the same symptoms in a man than low testosterone. So okay. uh, that's why it's also important. And I tell everybody, it's like, not only ask your doctor about testosterone, ask your doctor about thyroid hormone uh, uh, testing too yeah. and that's another another uh, problem that we have so what? most people ask me why are you doing this you're a chemical engineer you're not an, a physician he says I, I'm looking forward to the day I don't have to do this anymore yeah. I really am mm. like in HIV I kind of stopped working on HIV wasting because things got better 
Mm, I yeah. would love to stop working on men's health education because things got, but we're far from that. Yeah. Many years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, Nelson. So you you painted a bit of a picture there for our listeners on on the types of things that uh, obviously aging. We, we're going to lose testosterone. You know, our libido, our um, mental disposition, our positivity in life, our physical uh, exertion, obviously. Energy levels, I mean, sleep probably gets affected as well. All these things that a lot of our listeners would be dealing with and may not realize it's, it's testosterone related. Why do you think that the GPs in general are, are not on board with that one? Like for females, HRT, menopause, that's fine. Okay, you're, you're coming into menopause. Here's, boom, here's your estrogen, progesterone. There you go. This will fix you up. Now, why, why is it there a stigma associated for the, for the men? And, and it, it, is it improving? Because I... I will confess that, that I am in the same boot. That's why I am on the XL Mail and, and you know, a couple of years ago, I guess, you know, the libido-related issues, the, the increase in body fat, the lethargic tide, the foggy brain, those sorts of things, and um, back and forth to various doctors and, and endocrinologists, and they didn't seem to help, and then I got put in touch with a doctor that could, and I get monitored every six months, and, um, and but my normal GP, when I mention it to her, it's sort of like she frowns and... You know, well, what are you doing that for? I don't like the light, uh, don't like the sound of that, and and um, yeah, why why is there an issue? And um, you know, is it improving? Uh, like you said, you're obviously pushing uh, in this regard because there's a need for it. But are things improving, or is it still uh, a fair way to go? I think things are improving, but we're we have a long way to go. Um, there are many barriers. I mean, to why doctors are not. Um, first of all, is is lack of education. They just did not get this information in school because in many medical schools, this is basically taboo. You know, only yeah. even in endocrinologists, where you know doctors that specialize in hormones, they spend most of their education on on diabetes management, on even thyroid management, other hormones except testosterone. So. And the second taboo is the fact that testosterone is associated with all the bad things that are are labeled a male, you know, you know, roy rage or men being aggressive or even wars have been blamed on testosterone. So testosterone has been blamed, but nobody says testosterone is men that drive to build the world, build buildings, build, you know, roads. So testosterone is also, I can say, responsible for the building of the world. So, uh, so this, this, all this stigmatized stuff, the, 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 the old data like we had 20 years ago that started scaring doctors about prostate cancer, that turned out to be basically not true after many studies. So, but that stayed in their psyche, especially the older doctors that still think um, testosterone replacement can cause uh, prostatic cancer. The fact is, if you have prostatic cancer, obviously testosterone is not, is not for you because it can accelerate prostatic cancer, but it does not cause prostatic cancer. I mean, most men on testosterone replacement for years do not even have prostatic uh, PSA increases. So anyways, so there are many misconceptions and it's getting better. Why is it get better? getting better, especially in the United States? It's because we have, what, eight, nine? I, last time I counted, there's one every six months. Ten products pushed by different pharmaceutical companies. Okay. So these pharmaceutical companies come in into a doctor's office, the reps, and give some some sort of education. It's very limited too. It's only so they're getting some education from the pharmaceutical reps uh, from the different companies in Australia. You guys may have different 
regulations about how pharmaceuticals can can, can educate doctors or market to doctors. Yep. But we in the United States are have a little more. We're a little more liberal than most countries. So yes, it is getting better from that side. Okay. okay. So it sounds like there's a lot of pros there. Um, uh, all those things I mentioned, supplement the testosterone and the, the, the quality of life, libido comes back. Everything's good. Are there any cons like when the guys are on it? And obviously I can say there are, but yeah. from your mouth, um, yeah. like what are the what are the things you do have to look for and, and yeah. our listener can take this on board and maybe mention it to their GP? Yeah, there, you know, testosterone is, in, is contraindicated for one type of men, men that have prostatic specific antigen, PSA, of four or above. So whoever has four or above automatically is not, most doctors will not treat. I mean, that's that's a correct thing. So that's the only contraindication that testosterone has, uh, meaning okay. that's the only forbidden thing. But once you get on testosterone, the, the problem in, you know, I see many doctors that, is that they're not monitoring patients uh, every you know few months. The first year, it takes a lot more frequency to monitor yep. and test you. Obviously, after you're stable, you, yep. every six months is fine. But um, many doctors are not following hematocrit, which is uh, the amount of red blood cells that we have in our blood. Testosterone tends to increase the amount of red blood cells, and that's fine. If you if you have anemia, you feel better, but if you overproduce uh, red blood cells, you can develop uh, uh, thick thickness of the blood or viscosity it tends to go up and hematocrit is, is a way that we test that. So that could actually cause cardiovascular disease. So unmonitored testosterone replacement has risks. Unmonitored. Monitored testosterone replacement is manageable and it can be safe. As long as the doctors are following hematocrit, estradiol, many doctors don't test that female hormone, testosterone can aromatize into estradiol, high estradiol can have some cardiovascular issues too. Um, the PSA, obviously, once yep. in a while, you know, prostatic stuff. So, and many doctors obviously do a great job. So if anything starts going up or, you know, off, they know how to manage that before it becomes a problem. Okay, so okay. Uh, obviously negative symptoms, uh, you find the GP that uh, can treat you, and there are GPs that do out there. Uh, but the the key is to monitoring the any uh, side effects, negative health concerns, and the ongoing monitoring. And I guess uh, in the first year, uh, making sure the levels are good, the quality of life is good, uh, and then thereafter the, the the four to six month follow ups to make sure everything's good. But all that being said, if if it is monitored, uh, it is uh, to a degree some of the. You know, you hear uh, guys saying, well, I don't want to take anything for the rest of my life. It's sort of like, well, you don't get any younger. And if you want to feel good for the rest of your life, then it's a decision you will make. If you don't want to feel good and you want uh, libido related issues and lethargic and, and brain fog and, and uh, a decrease in muscle mass, if you do uh, happy with all those things, then I guess the the individual can choose not to continue with the TRT. But it is a, a lifelong commitment, isn't it? Like basically, yes. because when you're on it, you shut down your natural production. What little testosterone you did produce, that obviously stops because you have an exogenous uh, supplementation. So your endogenous production shuts down. But it's the, the quality of life that, that um, you have thereafter that's the, the, the key uh, in all of this, isn't it? 
Yeah, and you know, and some men may decide to get on testosterone, and then um, they try for a few months and back and forth with their doctors. And very few of them, I mean, most of them do gain benefits, and and they know that life, they can do this for life because it's, it's changed their lives and their their relationships and their their, their jobs and everything. But some uh, that may want to get off, um, and there are many reasons why. Um, forget that their testosterone production is going to remain basically shut down after they get off the therapy for for weeks or months. In some studies, it has taken six months to men, for men to go back to baseline to their starting testosterone. Yeah, so yeah. those six months are hell. You know, yeah. you get basically all the symptoms you had before and probably worse because you're actually going to be even more suppressed than you were before. Mm. So yes, it is. A, 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 but you know, I tell guys, it, it doesn't mean that you have to give up everything in life. I mean, once you get used to, and, and we're talking about either a daily gel after you take a shower or, or an injection every week. In the United States, we are actually injecting smaller doses twice, uh, twice a week yep. um, in or pellets or something. So once you find the benefits it's great but it is it is a lifetime commitment and it can affect your 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 testosterone production if you get off some men get when i get off their doctors this is the number one cause i see why men by doctors want to stop testosterone in men is when men complain about not being able to have children and they want to have their wives or girlfriends pregnant testosterone decreases uh, sperm count and quality and doctors basically tell them to stop so that their sperm count can go up and now we know that that's not needed i mean you can actually even use hcg is another uh, product uh, human chorionic gonotropin in combination with testosterone so that you don't lose your fertility and you can actually keep uh, your testicle size nor- uh, to normal because what happens also when your own testicles start stop producing testosterone they tend to shrink a little not not all the way some people yeah. I tell people you're not gonna have raisins for <laughs> testicles, but but you know it does it does. And HCG can actually prevent that that testicular atrophy. Okay, excellent, excellent. Yeah. Okay, Nelson. So let's say that for the listener out there that you know there are various lifestyle factors that they need to explore. They go and get a blood test, and they'll have the uh, total testosterone and free testosterone. What what are the difference between those two markers? Yeah, you know, most of it, I would say 99% of the data we have on testosterone in men comes from studies that, that me- measure total testosterone. So that's what actually most doctors look at right away because that's, that's what we have in published uh, data. The free testosterone is the bioactive part of testosterone. Testosterone basically gets bound up by either albumin or sex hormone binding globulin. These are two, two hormones that grab testosterone and... They don't let testosterone do its job. Only 2% of testosterone basically becomes free and can do the job that is required to testosterone to do. But and as, as we need more testosterone, also albumin can release some testosterone. It's almost like a, the, the refrigerator of testosterone. Okay. But sex hormone binding globally has a very strong bond, and that part of the binding does not, it is not released. So anyways... Um, so free testosterone is two percent, and and some doctors obviously also follow the percentage of uh, of, of free testosterone to total. Some men, if they have, in my point of view, if they have less than two percent, there is issues. You know, something is the sex hormone binding globulin is binding too much of your testosterone, so it leaves most of it inactive. And even though your total number looks beautiful, uh, you're free. If your free is low, then you're not getting all the benefits. So. Okay. Yeah, we it, it, almost every doctor right now follows both numbers. Okay, so total testosterone is, uh, and they look at the free uh, free test albumin SHBG. 
Am I right in understanding that uh, one person's 350, like you mentioned, or you know, uh, middle of the range is, is is low for another person? You know, one person might uh, function a little better near the upper limit of the reference range. Am I right in, in suggesting that, that it varies from person to person and the yeah. symptoms, symptoms of what you need to look at? Yeah, you know, we humans, we're all different, you know. Um, I've met guys that are, you know, they have a total testosterone of 300 and they feel fine. Yep. And some others that uh, need uh, levels higher than that, it's higher than 700. I usually run mine around 1100, so I'm, I'm definitely not on the lower side of range. It yep. can go up as high as 1500 in the reference testing. Um, anything above 1500 is uh, most doctors freak out and they want to lower your dose anyway so but uh, yeah it's very personal it's very individual um, we're not it's a, not a kind of a cookie cutter thing that's why many doctors at least in the United States they also go for symptoms so yes. if you have a 400 but you're showing all the symptoms all of them um, then they may actually treat you um, in, in the, another thing that we have to remember is that you may have lowers testosterone because you have a lot more fat mass or yes. your metabolic disorder so there are many reasons and the many ways natural ways to increase your own testosterone before you start testosterone replacement and losing weight is one of them uh, obviously um, and keeping your blood sugar more more constant more stable is okay. another one in uh, exercise and, 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 and sleep actually sleep quality sleep quality is probably a number one factor in testosterone that's really where we produce the most testosterone during the night and we peak during the morning and then testosterone starts going down as they, they progress. Okay. okay, so sleep, regulating blood sugar, obviously nutrition plays a role, low body fat, keeping body fat in check, training, resistance training I'm assuming you're referring to in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of that, are there any little, uh, for our listeners that, that aren't quite ready to go down the route of... Uh, hitting up the doc for some, uh, you know, a shot of test a couple of times a week, but they want to maximize their own potential. Are there any, if they're doing all those things, get the body fat in check, training, etc. any uh, nutritional practices or like oysters? Do we, do we get the zinc <laughs> in the oysters? Is that going to help? Or, you know, uh, deaspartic acid, yeah, tribulus, anything like that? Anything, uh, omega-3s? Uh, to on- yeah, to be honest with you, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm in search of the, the perfect testosterone booster that does not increase your liver enzymes because most of them are oral. And I see a lot of guys coming to my coaching sessions with high liver enzymes and they're taking these oral testosterone boosters. Most of them don't work. Yep. Uh, actually, none of them, even aspartic acid, even the ones that have even tribulus. Yep. When you read all, the, read all the research, you see how poorly those studies were done and how, how, uh, how much uh, data uh, is there against them. So. If a testosterone booster is proven to work uh, in the near future, the FDA and the DEA jumps on it right away and they would try to regulate it. So far, there is not such a thing. I mean, all testosterone, the the only way to increase testosterone besides, like you said, you know, losing weight, sleeping better, et cetera, et cetera, is is getting testosterone replacement. So most, in a lot of guys, it's a multi-billion dollar industry of promising men that these testosterone boosters work. What happens in most cases, and that's what the FDA has found, 
is that most of these products have a Chinese imported Chinese uh, Cialis or, or, or Viagra. So yeah. guys actually feel obviously the effect on their erections and they swear that the testosterone booster is working. They never, yeah. most of these guys never test their own testosterone. I tell people, if you want to buy a supplement and it's good, you're going to spend $80 on it because somebody tell you that it's great, at least spend, you know, 30 or at least $30 that we spend in the United States to test your testosterone after you've been on it, um, you know, for two or three weeks and, and see if it really is true. And that's yeah. an easy way to, 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 to detect it. So, but all of them, I have to say, it's a scam. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it bothers me. It really bothers me because a lot of guys are spending a lot of money on this. And it is harmful too because a lot of these products increase liver enzymes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that's fascinating, Nelson, because there are a lot of supplements, and I see I'm on various uh, forums, and uh, that you are as well, and you will see from time to time uh, a particular supplement um, uh, hit the hit the the, the, the news the press, and um, and it's been shown to actually have you know uh, stenozolol or uh, you know a trace amounts of actual anabolics, and and they are actually very toxic on the on the liver, you know. So I'll certainly. Uh, Think twice about um, uh, buying supplements off off the internet because uh, you really don't know what you're getting. Mm. Yeah. So Nelson, the journey for you is uh, obviously an ongoing process. Is your focus on still trying to uh, maximise life and maintain health as much as possible, or, or you on a mission to try and um, uh, you know find a cure well, to, peace. To, to HIV? Where is your focus these days? Great question. The cure of HIV is coming. I'm, I'm actually part of um, several research committees. I haven't abandoned my HIV work. Uh, that's actually my main focus now. I'm, I'm involved as an activist in research groups, um, working on stem cell research and, and, and uh, vaccines and et cetera, et cetera. I think we will have a cure um, within maybe 20 years and it will not be a simple cure. It will be a combination of different approaches. Um, so I'm working, I'm obviously, because I want to be cured. I really believe and I still believe that uh, I will probably be cured before I die, you know? So um, in that sense, I'm feeling good because um, there's a lot of research going on, a lot of money being invested. And actually most activists like myself were actually pretty happy with um, things, how things have turned out in the past three, four years with funding for research, uh, HIV cure research. Uh, I actually, one of my best friends is the only man in the world that has been cured of HIV. It was through chemotherapy and, and uh, stem cell transplant. It's a long story. You can actually Google, you know, uh, a Berlin patient on, on the internet and read the story. So we know at least that it is possible. Yes. And ever since we found that he was cured uh, seven, eight years ago, the world changed completely. All the researchers woke up and say, oh, it is possible. So I'm very happy with that. On the men's health side, I think I'm very optimistic too. Um, I think uh, my work is still needed. There are a few of us working yep. on the field of activism in men's health uh, and educating. So I think that's improve. It's going to improve. Um, you know. So my goal is basically to live long. <laughs> I'm 56. I still look like I'm, I look a little better than most 56 years old, you especially do, with 30, 32 years of uh, HIV. Yeah. Um, so I I'm almost want to beat all the odds and be able to write a book maybe in 10 years again. I'm writing another book right now on uh, fatigue uh, in general as a, as a problem that affects not only men but also women because I really think that um, fatigue has become the main issue, at least in the United States. And, um, and, and so that's my next book, by the way. So I'm plugging my next book. It's called <laughs> Fatigue No More. So. Okay. 
All right, so uh, that's excellent. It sounds like you're uh, going. F- you're not uh, slowing down in any way, shape, or form, and uh, you know, inspiring those around you and um, giving hope to the rest of us. Uh, so, for our listeners that do want to uh, find out a little bit more about you or get any of your books, uh, was it testosteronewisdom.com? Is the, probably the best uh, port of yeah, call for that one? I have several sites, but. Um testosteronewisdom.com has uh, an order page you can download the book there Uh, Amazon Kindle in Australia has a few of the other books that I have and um, if you want to really get updated quickly just um, register on Excel Mail E-X-C-E-L-M-A-L-E Yep. dot com. An awesome and, resource. Because I really, I'm very proud of that site. And, yeah, it's and, very uh, good. Uh, over twelve thousand guys are, are there, and a lot of really smart, smart guys and doctors too. So yeah, and join us there. Be, you know, ask me any questions or two. I'm happy to have you know more Australians in the group. <laughs> awesome, yeah, awesome. So great. Excel Mail testosteronewisdom.com if you want to get uh, your fix of Nelson but it's been an absolute pleasure for me uh, quite an eye opener hopefully our listeners got a bit about this and um, got a few ideas to you know if they're feeling symptomatic they can hit their doctor up and um, it was fascinating to hear your, your life story as well well thank you for having me guys I appreciate it and, and let's stay in touch uh, definitely uh, I'll be back to Sydney uh, at least uh, I've been there twice so hopefully I'll be there again in the near future maybe we'll get you in the studio mate. yeah that'll be great hey, I've yeah. always wanted to lecture there so I'm, I'm trying to make some contacts you know so for any listener out there yeah. contact me on excelmail.com if uh if you're in Australia and, and yeah. you're open to having lectures uh, yeah, to man, educate yeah. me, and here uh, another plug. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll actually we um, might be able to get yeah, something def- sorted. Definitely yeah. uh, talk to you about that. Um, uh, I'll email you, mate. Definitely. That, that's a great idea. Yeah. All right. Thanks Good. a lot, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Nelson. See you later, mate. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, there he was, Nelson Virgil. I tell you what, mate, it's worth actually just taking a, um, a step back and, and to think yeah. about the the psychological position when you're 24 years of age, back in the 80s, getting diagnosed with a literal death sentence, yeah. to then make a decision to push forth and take it head on and to literally live a life where he's seen dozens and dozens of people die around him yeah. and keep pushing and doing what he's what he's done it's he's a very special person nelson virgil yeah there's not uh, not not many of uh yeah i would have thrown in the uh, the tower well and truly earlier on it's um yeah amazing what what some people will do but mm. uh, obviously now he's in that position where his uh his sole purpose on this planet is to um educate and help uh men and uh and people in general. Yeah, but, that's um, right. Interesting that uh, he thinks that there will be a, a cure pretty pretty soon for yeah. the HIV virus. Yeah, that's exciting. From a uh, testosterone perspective, well, that's, I think, pretty definitive evidence that uh, any sort of test booster that you want to get your hands on <laughs> is, is a waste of money. Um, yeah. Any associated uh, erection-based activities might be due to a trace elements of uh, Viagra or Cialis that they like to chuck yes. into, the, into yes. the product. But basically, once again, lifestyle factors, body yeah. fat, sleep, stress... You know, controlling insulin, perhaps. Yeah, you know, it all comes back to getting all those basics right, those fundamentals, yeah. and you know, calories right. And uh, you know, I know uh, Damon often speaks about. I mean, he does um, the hormone replacement therapy down at Recomp, but um, 
last resort. So it comes in, okay, let's get your training, let's get your nutrition on point, let's get your calories on point, let's get everything else right. Then and only then, if, if there's still issues, then we'll refer out. So, yeah, that's right. Mm. And I think another fact as well, mate, some people might get a blood test and their, their testosterone levels come up quite low, but for whatever reason, they utilize what they have very well and they're Brad strong Soper, and, in, yeah. and in good shape. You know? I mean, Brad was a, a, one of the um, coaches now over at Lyft, but um, Brad, uh, he... Uh, Super strong, you know, competes yeah. in strongman comps, yeah, uh, exceptional performance in the gym, and he has like mediocre testosterone levels. So, yeah, it's not the be all and end all, you know. Mm. Okay, that's fascinating. Thanks very much for being with us for another episode. Mm. Uh, a couple of big shows coming up in the rest of 2016. Huge. Some, some nice uh, and different guests yeah. on different Refreshing. topics coming up in the future. So, uh, stick around for another episode of the Icon Performance Health Podcast. Yes. Under the bar. Nice one.